Amen. What a joy to sing of the truths of God's word together. Let me invite you to take that very word now and turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we continue the series which we've just begun in this great book of Holy Scripture. Hear now the word, the living God. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked alongside the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the living Christ, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Now, O Lord, we pray that by your spirit, the very preaching of the word, this ordinary means that you've given to us might nourish and edify our souls, that Christ would be seen and savored, that our hearts would be convicted of remaining sin and would be assured of gospel perfection in Christ. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story of Moses has been told over and over and over for thousands of years. It's a familiar story, at least it used to be. But it's a story that's been told through Christ's church as a story which points us to Jesus. There was a hymn writer in the 300s, so maybe a little over 250 years after Christ's ascension. This hymn writer by the name of Prudentius writes a hymn for Christ's church. Imagine gathering with Christ's people on the Lord's Day and singing a hymn like this. Thus Moses, in a former age, escaped proud Pharaoh's foolish law, and as the Savior of his race, prefigured Christ, who was to come. A cruel edict had been passed, forbidding Hebrew mothers all, when sons were born to them, to rear these virile pledges of their love. Devoutly scornful of the king, a zealous midwife found a way to hide her charge and keep him safe for future glory and renown. 1,700 years ago, the church of Jesus Christ was singing about how Moses 
prefigured Christ. The story of Moses points us to Christ. We are to see the many lessons in the book of Exodus, but we're to look beyond Exodus's immediate lessons to the great redemption of Christ's people. I want us to look this morning as we continue. If you remember, last week we saw that Pharaoh had given command. This king didn't recognize Egypt. The Hebrews had, didn't recognize Joseph. The Hebrews had grown mighty in Egypt. So he told the midwives, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. The midwives, with great faith in Yahweh God, refused the order of the king. And so the very last verse of chapter 1 of Exodus is that Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. That's where we are. God's people with promises from God, covenant promises that He would bring blessing to the world through their race, that He would bring them up out of Egypt, are now in Egypt, in slavery, and they're being told, kill all the boys, crush all the Hebrew seed. Well, We pick the story up then in verse 1. A man of the house of Levi. Now many of you have read your Bibles, so you know what's going to happen from the house of Levi. This is going to be the tribe wherein when the people are brought out of Egypt, and they are made into a nation, and there is a tabernacle, and then ultimately a temple, which itself points to Jesus. It's from this particular tribe that priests will come. Mediators, if you will to offer sacrifices. But they didn't start well. In fact, just a few chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 49, you remember Jacob lies dying and he blesses his various sons. And this is what he said about two of them. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This is your family that you come from. This is the family, Moses, to which you were born. But God eventually will use this tribe in His grand plan to point all people everywhere who have eyes to see that Jesus is the ultimate priest who takes away the sins of the world. But the text says in verse 2 that the woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that it was a beautiful child. She hid him three months. Of course, there is symbolism throughout the pages of Scripture the number three, and of course it is on the third day, that Christ would be raised from the grave. But for three months, imagine this mother trying to keep the cries of her child silent. She is defying the king. And in great faith, as we'll see, she defies his order. Night after night, colic after colic, Diaper change after diaper change, need of bottle after need of bottle, the child cries. 
for three months, and then she can do it no longer. So what do we see? Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she took an ark. She took an ark of bulrushes for him. Now, brothers and sisters, have we ever seen an ark before in Scripture? The word ark here in English is from a Hebrew word, of course, and it's the same exact word that was used in the book of Genesis for Noah's ark. What was Noah's ark? Well, it offered protection of God's chosen one under threat of drowning. God preserves his people and brings them out of the waters. We're meant to understand in Exodus chapter 2 that it was a real basket or ark of safety that Moses was placed in, but there's a theme. In fact, if you read the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, moving into the New Testament, you'll see a regular repetitive theme. God rescuing his people and drawing them up out of water. For Noah was brought through water to safety. Moses was brought through water to safety. Israel, as we'll see in a few chapters, was brought through water to safety. The Scriptures call that a baptism. Christ Himself receives a baptism, and then we, His people, receive a baptism. But notice that this ark was covered. Boys and girls, Moses' mother made a basket or an ark to protect her little boy and as glue as it were to kind of keep the water out as much as she could. She uses asphalt and pitch. Now these will be substances that we will see later in Scripture. Genesis 14, 10 the valley of Sedim was filled with it, with asphalt, and is the place where Lot was kidnapped and taken to Sodom. One commentator notes that it was also the very substance that Babel was made out of. In these instances, a place of evil, a place of going against, as it were, the ways of God, but this valley of Sedim that was filled with asphalt would be the very place in Numbers 34.12 that would be the ultimate boundary place of the land of Canaan. So I want you to see that the Lord himself is telling us a true story through Moses' pen, but he's bringing together themes from all over the pages of Scripture so that we might see page after page that the Lord is renewing and redeeming all things and pointing us to the one through whom he will do all of these things. The one who will bring his people to safety and redemption from slavery to sin. Verse 4 leaves us with these words, And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now we read that quickly, but imagine his sister. Your baby brother is floating in a basket and you can no longer protect him. All you can do is stand and see, will he drown? Will someone find him and kill him? He is a Hebrew boy after all. 
sister stands afar off to see what happens. Interestingly enough, years later, that same spot would be the place where God would take that baby boy who had grown into a man and millions of Hebrews out of Egypt to slavery. The Reed Sea, or as we like to call it, the Red Sea. Well, verse 5 continues the story. Then the daughter of Pharaoh, this is a pagan daughter of a king. Certainly, the end is near for this little boy. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Her maidens walked alongside the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. What happens next? Certainly we're thinking, if we've never read this story, that the daughter of the one who gave the edict to kill all the Hebrew boys will certainly do exactly what needs to be done. Call the guards. Let's kill this little boy. But the text says in verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and of course the baby is crying. That's what babies do. So she had compassion on him. It's not too much to say that the Lord God, the living God, used the compassion of the daughter of an evil king to bring about the ultimate salvation of his people out of slavery in Egypt. She had compassion and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This little boy belongs to the Hebrews. Notice next in verse 7, the boldness of Moses' sister. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, now this is unprovoked. This is unannounced. Pharaoh's daughter didn't come to this sister. She didn't come to Miriam and say, well, what do you think I should do? The daughter is standing there seeing what has happened and says in great faith, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Notice the boldness. This is a risky thing for Moses' sister, boys and girls. In one word, Pharaoh's daughter could have ended the life or had daddy end the life of this little girl. But as we saw last week and as we'll continue to see throughout the first few chapters of this book, all the Hebrews have been given a set of promises. And one of those promises was given to their great-great-great-great-grandfather, as it were, Abraham. I will show up, the living God says, and I will bring you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? Pharaoh's daughter in verse 8 says, go. Now what ends up happening is this. Not only does the child get to be nursed and nurtured by his own mother, but she gets paid for it. Yes, that's good. Go do that. Take the child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Pharaoh's daughter 
may or may not know at this point what's happening. Some scholars think maybe she knew, had compassion not only on the child but on the whole family. Others perhaps think that this is just in God's providence what occurs. There will be a regular plundering of the Egyptians, by the way, throughout this book. Isn't it interesting? (laughs) The coins and dollar bills and credit cards of this world belong to our God. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Now that must have been a bittersweet moment. This is the woman that God used to save my boy. But this is the woman that ultimately will be the mother of my child. And he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Moses, of course, means drawn out of water. And it's not too much to say that God's people will be as well. Moses is identified with his people. He's drawn out of the water, so shall they be. Turn over to the book of Isaiah for just a moment. I want to demonstrate this to you. Israel's history, the Hebrews' history, is a history of being drawn out of water. Isaiah 63, 11. When through the prophet Isaiah, God's people are remembering God's kindness and mercy, Isaiah writes these words, Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Where is he who moses us, as it were, with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? The daughter of Pharaoh giving this name is something that's more important than just a name. Her naming Moses is really calling him what he will be used to do for the living God. God is going to draw his people out of the water. Now, the best commentary on Scripture is, of course, Scripture. So we see, tell of this story elsewhere. Turn all the way over to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Boys and girls, Acts chapter 7 happens weeks after Jesus' ascension. Some months after, now the church is spreading, and a man named Stephen, a deacon, a deacon of Christ's church, is on trial, and he gives testimony of the history of God among the Jewish people. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 19, he says these words. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned and learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians 
and was mighty in words and in deeds. This story that we're reading in Exodus chapter 2 makes it into Stephen's defense of God's faithfulness to his old covenant people to get us to Jesus. And notice what Stephen says in Acts 7 verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This would serve him well, wouldn't it? This training in the schools of Egypt would serve him well because he would eventually lead a nation. And he would be inspired of the Holy Spirit to write the first five books of the Bible. Let me just take an aside here for just a moment. In Acts chapter 7, the Scriptures call what Moses learned under the pagan Egyptians wisdom. This is another way of pointing to the common grace of God, or what we might call the light of nature, that we learn in two ways, brothers and sisters, the truth of God. We learn by studying what He has made, the creation around us. We learn through His special revelation, the pages of Scripture. Moses was well-versed in the wisdom. Some commentators, for instance, think this might have been mathematics, and music, philosophy even. And the Scripture calls this wisdom. The early church, the early Christian church, many of them were well-versed in the philosophy or so-called wisdom of the Greco-Roman Empire. I guess what I'm getting at is we need to be careful to not assume that because we have the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, that it's vanity to study the created order. We need to be careful in all of our desire to let the Bible be our guide. That we don't move into a subtle understanding that Christianity is sort of a license to reject the wisdom found in the study of general revelation. In fact, as we train our children... We need to make sure that they understand not simply the Scriptures, but how the Scriptures speak to all of the interpretations of things in the created order. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30 will speak of Solomon and say his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses was trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians. In some of our circles, there can be the subtle message that only Christians know how to study things. That only Christians can interpret created order. That only Christians know how to do science. That only Christians know how to study philosophy, art. But I would submit to you that that flies in the face of our brother Moses and our brother Solomon. We are right to want to sift the teachings of this world through the pages of Scripture. But that's just it. Sift. Sift the things that we see in the created order through the pages of Scripture. I won't linger here much longer. There may be boys and girls, teenagers in this room who will be great scientists for King Jesus, great mathematicians, great musicians, 
than artists, who spend a lot of time studying the so-called wisdom of Egypt. But they do it with the covenant of God in view. Stephen says he was trained in the wisdom of Egypt. This will, of course, be used well, as we will see. Well, this is the story. Moses is saved. He is drawn out of the water. Are there lessons, then, that we can learn? Let me give you at least three this morning. The first is the governance of the world. Boys and girls, who rules the kings and princesses of this world? I'm not asking if all the kings and princesses and princes of this world love King Jesus. What I'm asking is, who rules over them by his very word? King Jesus does. The living God does. Notice in our text that God governs the rulers of this world, even those outside the church, outside of his covenant people, and works to ensure that they serve the mission of his people and his covenant. I'm getting this most clearly, of course, in our passage. We'll see it later when God deals literally with the very heart of King Pharaoh. I'm getting this in our text from Pharaoh's daughter. From the vantage point of Sister Miriam, perhaps Mother Jochebed, every single moment looked like what's going to happen next. But not from the vantage point of heaven. The living God, the triune God, was absolutely in control, even of the compassion of a pagan princess. Don't we find it difficult in our day not to look at the world around us, particularly the rulers around us? We saw this some in Daniel months back and begin to fear this is what they're doing. This is how they're rising up against God and his anointed. You see that in the book of the Revelation. There will be governments that rise up against our God, but they are pawns in the hands of the living God. God governs this situation. This demonstrates to us that we can trust him and how he governs the world. I know many of you are aware that in this nation in which we live, it seems as if there is great turmoil. We're told in just a few months from now, it's time to vote on a new leader. There are all kinds of theories about how we should think about this. But let's just go to the very theory of our heart for just a moment. In one sense, we ought to take our civic duty in our hands with great responsibility. Yes, in God's providence, we have been given a trust, as it were, in the common kingdom. The freedom to elect leaders. Not every nation can say that. But on the other hand... We should rid our hearts of the fear that the outcome of God's glory among the nations is dependent on who is elected. God can move in the simplest of ways to include the compassion of a pagan princess. Don't you think, brothers and sisters, for one moment that he will not govern and rule providentially over whoever is elected next? 
So the first thing we see is the governance of the world. But secondly, I think we see the greatness of faith. The greatness of faith. Notice in just this passage the risks that several took because of their faith. Back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Jochebed, Moses' mother, hides him for three months. Every morning was a day of faith in God's promise. Miriam's sister, every moment, every anxious breath, she stands there waiting. What will happen? And of course, we saw at the end of chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives in their verses. Faith caused them to, as it were, not follow Pharaoh's command. Once again, the New Testament gives us commentary on what happens here. Hebrews 11:23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. I'm not calling it faith. The Scripture's calling it faith. His parents were people of faith. Because they saw he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's command. There is a regular theme in the book of Exodus of both the faith of men used of God and women. In fact, thus far in this chapter, have we not seen multiple women exhibiting great faith in the promises of God? The midwives, the mother, the sister. But what caused them to make these life-risking decisions? Well, I think it was the previous promise and covenant of God. You remember in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph makes a bold declaration. I'm going to die, But God is going to bring you up out of this land. And and when he does, I want you to bring my bones with you. Verse 24 of Genesis 50. And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. I'm so convinced of God's covenant promise. But I want you to move my cemetery plot to the land that God has given us. But you know, Joseph wasn't the first person to pass along this promise. This promise finds expression in covenant. God making covenant with His people. All the way back in the days of Abraham. Turn to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. There, God makes a covenant with Abraham, whose name, boys and girls, would be changed to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. What pieces? The pieces of animal carcasses that the living God had told Abraham to cut into two. And God himself, in the visible form of a smoking oven, as it were, and burning torch, passed through these pieces. This is God making covenant with Abram. What's the covenant? I will bring you out of slavery and into a land that I'm giving you. Later, these same people will be given a mark in their flesh. I will give you a land. And from you and that land, the blessing of the world will come. Now, we're not in Genesis 15, we're in Exodus 2, but you need to know that what is done here in Genesis 15 was a familiar type of covenant right. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was very common to say, we're going to cut a covenant It was the shedding of blood. And God here is essentially saying, you can do to me as these pieces on the ground if I don't keep my word. So Abraham passes this knowledge with the sign in his flesh to his son Isaac. Isaac passes this knowledge on to his son Jacob. Jacob to his family. Eventually, we get all the way down to these women. God cut a covenant with our fathers. He will bring us out. Wouldn't you love it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was actually a covenant cut with you in blood? to assure that God would bring you out of slavery? Wouldn't you love it, friend, sinner and slave to your sins, if there was actually some sure foundation for you? Because you're not a Hebrew, at least most of us anyway. And they've already been brought out of Egypt and given a land. That covenant has come to pass. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could rest sure that there was a covenant between God and you with blood spilt on the ground that assured that God would free you from your slavery too, your slavery to sin. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could raise your children in the knowledge that God keeps His promises? And when things look really, really dark, do not fear, for God has spilt blood to say that He will save us. There is. All of this covenant work of the Old Testament ultimately points to the promise which is fulfilled in Christ, who, as it were, cuts covenant. God in Christ making the covenant of grace with us so that we lie our heads down on our pillows every night in the midst of a world of rulers that we don't think that we can trust, in the midst of all kinds of pagan, idol-worshiping people. And we can say, We have the ultimate covenant. We can teach our children in the ultimate covenant that God will not leave us in slavery to sin. And when we sin, do you ever find yourself groaning? Well, I stay here forever. 
As Augustine said of the Hebrews making bricks in Egypt in chapter 1, do you ever find yourself going, when will I serve the sin in my heart no more? Well, the master has been killed, but his reign still lingers in our hearts. God's covenant with you in Christ is that he will not leave you in your sins. Nehemiah Cox, the man who most likely wrote most of our church's statement of faith back in the 1670s, commented on Abraham's covenant in Genesis 15. The Lord gives Abraham an assurance that in the appointed time he will redeem them from their servitude by signal judgment on their oppressors and by great favor to them. They would suddenly change their condition from lack and penury to the enjoyment of great riches and substance. The exact accomplishment of all this you may read in the book of Exodus. All the wonders recorded there are the birth of these promises, for it was not the goodness of the people, but the stability of the promise that all those things are to be ascribed to. And we look at the greatness of faith. This little girl, <laughs> don't exactly know how old she was, but she trusted in God more than in men. Children, teenagers, do you worry most of all in your hearts about what people think, or do you have a rock-solid fear in what God declares over you? This little girl has faith. We say, wow, if I had half that faith in my workplace, half that faith in my school. The mother, three months, faith. The midwives, faith. And we look and we say, oh, what great faith. But ultimately, the lesson is not to fall at the feet of Jochebed or Miriam's or the midwife's faith. It's to look to the God who made the promises that their faith rested in. You see, this is what caused them to believe God over men. To believe God over kings of this earth. Our problem is that we make kings out of what everyone else says instead of trusting what the king has said. Because God cut covenant, they acted in accordance. So in this chapter, we see the governance of the world, we see the greatness of faith, but lastly, we see the grace of salvation. God will save his people, and he will use the small, minute details of this chapter to do so. A couple of notes. We pointed to this earlier, but... Moses identifies with his people. What do I mean by that? I mean, Moses' life is really a picture in some ways of Israel, which is really a picture in some ways, imperfectly, of us. Like Moses, just a few decades later, his people would be drawn out of the water. And Moses, as the early church hymn writer wrote, pictures Christ. Both of them, as it were, were born under the threat of death. And both of them take refuge. You ever thought about this? Where do both Moses and Jesus take refuge? From the evil edict of a king that wants to kill him. Egypt. For Jesus would be kept safe from Herod's wicked decree. For a while... 
in Egypt. God had promised to bring the blessing of salvation to his elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and to do that through Abraham. Here, humanly speaking, everything teeters on a baby in the bulrushes. God moves in the hearts of the Hebrew midwives, birthing and strengthening faith. He moves in Mother Jochebed. He moves in Sister Miriam, stirring faith. God moves the actions of the princess of Egypt. God brings Moses to protection. That Moses may be used to further the Hebrew people so that you and I in 2024 will hear the name of Jesus and we will savor it with sweetness. He is the blessing of the nations. He is the one who's brought me out of slavery in the Egypt of my sin. He's the one who laid down his life as a ransom for me. He's the perfect substitute. The blessing of the nations is not the gold of this world. The blessing of the nations that God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 is his glorious son who came and lived a perfect and righteous life. That all who trust in him will have a righteous record for all eternity in his sight. The blessing of the nations is the one who would come and bleed. His blood would pour out on the ground of this cursed and fallen world. God would be pleased to see the shedding of blood to cover forever the sins of his people. Listen, God has made covenant with you in Christ, believer. Christ's blood was spilt. That the new covenant would be secure for all time. God would be your God. That God would remember your sins no more. You want to meditate on what the new covenant it is? Just read Hebrews 8, the first half of it. God remembering your sins no more. But you lay your head down in the midst of the Egypt of this world and you say, tomorrow, what will bolster my faith? Well, in some sense, just like Miriam of old and Jochebed too and the Hebrew midwives. I can't see it yet. But God has made covenant with me and He will not fail to keep His word. And what is His word to you? It's written in various ways. Perhaps this one will ring in your ears. There is therefore now No condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. Or maybe Romans chapter 5 that our brother read just a few moments ago. That God sent His Son to die for sinners. Not good people, but sinners. To justify us. That we might be declared righteous in His sight. Oh, there is covenant with the shedding of blood. And this story in the second book of the Bible is part of the long journey to get us to see the sweetness of our Savior. Maybe Christ is not sweet to you because this story is not yet yours. Oh, you see your sin, whether you call it that or not. You see your imperfections. 
but maybe you've not heard or maybe you've not been convinced yet that you need Christ, listen, don't walk out this door today with us giving you the impression that what you need is a more moral life. That what you need is to drink less or smoke less. Don't let us give you the impression that what you need is to be a better singer of hymns with church people. What you need, friend, is a perfect record of righteousness so that the holy God of the universe has nothing but welcoming love for you instead of a movement of justice against your sins. And none of us has that in our own strength. But Christ, the sweet one, has come. And those who savor him by faith, who cling to him by faith, have their sins forgiven, have his blood covering the sins of their souls. And they have a record of righteousness that is his by faith, credited to their account. So Martin Luther in the 1500s can say about his own life, what I can say the same thing too about my life. At this very moment, I am a sinner. And yet, I am perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. And it's all because of Christ. I love Moses. I love the story of Miriam, Jochebed, Hebrew midwives. But that's not the ultimate point. It's the one that their faith was in, Christ. He is the ultimate Moses. And he will save you from your sins. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that we may see in the pages of this scripture the glories of Christ. The one to whom Moses and even these women of Exodus 1 and 2 fixed their gaze upon. They saw his day coming, Lord. And his day has come. And the sweetness of His name is pronounced and proclaimed even in our ears today. Would You grant faith to see Him? Would You strengthen faith in those who've seen Him by Your grace? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.